the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. My motivation, again, is that you would know that Jesus Christ is God and that being God, that you would know that Jesus Christ died on the cross because he's the only one who could do that and make the complete payment for your sin and that Jesus Christ being God is the only one who knows the way to heaven and has the way to heaven and he offers it to you and that you'll place your faith alone in Christ and then knowing that, that you will also surrender to Christ as the Lord of your life, not to get saved, but because now you have the power to live your life as a saved Christian. And so with all of that, I hope that these five witnesses might help you out. So let's look at witness number one as we do this. And this would be called the witness of John the Baptist. And so I'd like you to follow along beginning at John chapter 5. But when you do, I'd like you to pick it up at a special part of Scripture here that might help you understand a little bit of a backstory of this. Look, if you will, at verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now that sounds like it's a contradiction to what we studied last week when he was testifying about himself saying that I am God and here's why I am God. What he's really saying here in context because he's now going into the whole mode of witnesses is simply this. Yes, I am God and that is my witness, but at the same time, for you, the truth, here's the phrase, is established with two or three witnesses. And by the way, that's just good legal action. It's not just hearsay when one person heard it. Now you've got witnesses. So what he's doing now at this stage is he's shifting and saying, yeah, I am who I am. But now if it's just on me, let me show it to you how important witnesses are. If you'd like, you can either hold your place here and look at your notes or go back to your Bible in the Old Testament and particularly pick it up at Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is not the only place it's found, but I wanted you to see that truth is established with multiple witnesses. And that's why Jesus is going to do this at this particular time. So if you'll follow along here for just a moment, it might help you as you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17 and just look at verse 6. It says this, On the evidences of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is about to die or be put to death, he shall not be put to death on the evidences of just one witness. So you need to have two or three witnesses. What's interesting about the Lord is that he is full of what we call grace. And so grace upon grace, he could have had two witnesses, could have had three witnesses, but he's chosen to really add to the pile so that these guys would really be able to pick from all these witnesses which ones they would sense would be the most critical for them. So the first one being John the Baptist, back to John chapter 5 now, and let's look at this one. John chapter 5, it goes on to say in verse 32, there is another who testifies of me, and I know the testimony which he gives about me is true. Well, who is this one who testified about Christ? Now, in Scripture, there are many that testified about Christ. I don't have time to go through it. I'm just going through this passage. We can go through the passage that talked about the woman at the well. She testified that Jesus was God. Nicodemus testified that Jesus Christ was God. We'll find later on that the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus Christ is God. The disciples will testify later on that Jesus Christ is God. He had many witnesses, but in this context, he's picking one. 
The interesting thing is out of all the witnesses that he could have picked, human witnesses now we're talking about, which one did he choose? He chose John the Baptist. Now, why do you think he would have chosen John the Baptist? I think there are a couple of good reasons. One reason is probably the easiest one, and that is that they were most familiar with John the Baptist because he lived right about this time with them. In fact, when it says in verse 33, it says here, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I have received is not from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. It says it in the past tense. So it's highly likely that John the Baptist, although he had a great ministry, he was then put in jail, and you know the story, he was beheaded. So perhaps at this time, he had already died. But he was known by these Jewish leaders here. Here's another important truth. We also know that when John the Baptist was present, that he had a responsibility. His responsibility was to announce to the nation of Israel that the Messiah has come, and then secondly, to point the nation of Israel to Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, why would John the Baptist still be the, the higher prophet at that time for them? Well, the best we can tell is that the last prophet before John the Baptist was 400 years before then. And the Jews, when John the Baptist came on the scene, especially as there's the story about he was foretold to come even in his mother's womb that John the Baptist would be there, that all of a sudden John the Baptist, and here it is in a sentence, was the most recognized human on the face of the earth by the Jews as being sent from God. Now with that, though, they still questioned him because of his message about Jesus being the Messiah. Hold your place here in John 5 and go back to John chapter 1. Now, we have studied John 1 in depth here at this church, so you can go back over your material, especially as I did a long biography on John the Baptist. But those of you that are coming on board, let's pick it up for you just briefly to show you how significant this is. Remember, Jesus says, you sent to John, and he's testified of the truth. What happened in all of this? Pick it up at John chapter 1, verse 19, and you can follow. It says, this is the witness, or this is the testimony of John, not John the writer of the Gospel of John, but John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites, in other words, leaders, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? You know you're the prophet. You seem to be that special guy, but who are you? And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not that Messiah you're looking for. They asked him, well, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And again, referring back, in my opinion, to the Messiah, and I'll bring that out later on this morning. And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we can give an answer to those who sent us. Notice how the passages of the scripture don't contradict. They're linked together. What do you say about yourself? And I love this in verse 23. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We'll go back to John chapter 5. So basically he's saying, I am not the prophet, I'm not Elijah, I am not the Messiah, I am just John the Baptist, and my job is to point people to Christ. And so what is Jesus doing? He's saying, listen, you had a man among you who was pointing you to me, who testified of me that I am the Messiah. Now let's go a little bit back to this passage here. Notice what else it says here. Verse 35, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while 
in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. And we'll talk about that in a moment. What is this idea of lamp and light? I think probably the best way to explain that to you is this. David was known at times to be the lamp of Israel. We also know that Isaiah was also known as a lamp. But Jesus was never known as a lamp. He was always known as the light of the world, or he was the light. And it's interesting because lamps carry light. Lamps might have light in them, as this passage just said, but they are not the light. And so what he was saying simply is, John the Baptist was carrying the light, was pointing people to the light. He was the lamp. The other interesting thing about this passage, it says that uh, for a while there, they rejoiced, but only for a while, because you know what happened to John. They really didn't like John, and later on even the Gentiles executed John. And that all being the case, that kind of reminds me of maybe you and me, that some of you are going to be the lamp pointing your family and your friends to Jesus Christ. I hope you're a clean lamp. I hope you're a faithful lamp that's carrying that light. And as you carry it, that you're in a loving way shedding the light of the glorious gospel of salvation by faith alone to your family. But perhaps just like John the Baptist and better Jesus Christ, as you shed that light, that you're going to have a major pushback in your life. And when that comes, I just want you to know that you're in good company. You're in company of John the Baptist who came to point people to that light. I think our church is going to be very much like that as we teach the word of God deeply and we honor Jesus Christ and we remember our intimate relationship with him and at the same time to reach the lost world. There'll be people that'll be attracted to this. Believe me, they will be. This church will start filling up and it's even more now than it was a few months ago because people are hungry for this truth. They're not getting this stuff. They're getting three points in a poem, but they're not getting this. But when they come, they'll have it for a while, but you'll see the difference because some, as long as you keep teaching this, eventually you're going to step on some part of their belief system toe and they don't like that any longer and they'll go back out for the fluff to give them their daily day, their daily fix rather than their intimate walk with God. And so I want you to know that maybe you'll be a lot like John the Baptist, but don't give up. You be the lamp no matter what it costs you because you are a lamp to Jesus Christ who is God. Well, that's witness number one. Let's move now to witness number two. It seems like he keeps ramping up the witnesses here because he goes from this human being, and he really didn't need John to do this because he's good enough in himself, but he used it again because the Jews would recognize John and had at the beginning a respect for him. But now he moves into the witness of his works. So let's look at that for a second. We're going to look now just at verse 36. It says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John because now it's not just what John said. He's about to say, this is what I did. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. I think that's kind of interesting because Jesus Christ, you know, he could turn the water into the wine because he himself, because he himself was the wonderful water of life that can quench a thirst. He could be the bread of life because he can feed people, and he did with the 5,000. And he could raise Lazarus from the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. And so all the things that he did, although they helped people often tremendously when I think of Lazarus, wouldn't any of you like to die and be brought back to life again and have a little bit more life? Wouldn't you like to, to know that something great has happened to you? I read recently that Chuck Smith had lung cancer, and he announced last Wednesday 
after going through myriads of prayers and caring for the people and medical attention. And it was very serious that that cancer has shrunk. So in a sense, God has done a miracle in his life. But here's my point. All of those miracles still, no matter how better your life is, we still are going to die. And all the lessons might help us momentarily for this life. But I believe all those lessons will point to eternity and why we need Jesus Christ in our life now and forever. He came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. Eternal life and abundant life here. But it's all found in Christ, in Christ alone. So he talks about his works here and the things that he did. I did a study on the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I know some of these miracles are mentioned more than once. But the best I can come up with, and again, it's a little bit of a moving target, and it's my problem, not the Bible's problem, but I, I counted over three dozen significant miraculous works of Christ apart from what he did for us on the cross. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is he was just pumping out these miracles, so much so that John, who wrote John here, in chapter 20, verse 30 said, there were so many of them, that they're not all recorded in Scripture. Now, here's the big deal about it, and if you allow me just a moment to speak to this. I don't have time to unpack the concept of what is known as the signs and wonders movement. It's been around a long, 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 long time. And so perhaps the best way I could look at it, because in going through the works of Jesus Christ, the miracles that he has done, I tried to take those and not just identify a miracle or two or one or two events. I tried to pick it from a bigger let's call it a bird's eye view rather than a worm's eye view. And the, the, the bird's eye view seemed to be this, that before the canon of Scripture was closed, and canon means the entire scriptural substance base, Genesis to Revelation, we'll say, meaning that it's closed, meaning that there's no more books to be added to it, there's no wrong books that are in it, this is the canon, this is the measuring stick, this is it right here. Once this was done, then all that we needed to know about God and all that he needed to function and do for us, for us to know him, is contained in his inerrant and preserved word of God that we have today. Plus, his word is what we call sufficient. Sufficient means I don't need more than what he's already given to me here because everything I need to know that pertains to godliness is found in his word. It is in his spirit, in his divine nature, that's now in me. In addition to that, his word it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword accomplishing what he wants, which is to divide up our motives and our actions of our heart. So it has tremendous power to accomplish something. It isn't for the wow factor of another miracle. It's for us to be pointed to Christ, and the word itself is powerful enough to really do that. Now, I will not take away from any miracle that Jesus Christ did that's recorded in Scripture and then those that we don't know about, but we know he did because Scripture said he did more than what's recorded in Scripture. I believe he did it primarily to draw attention to himself that he had power to do it. Now watch. Even when he did that, how many times can you find in the background he was still accused of doing it, not in the power of God, which we like to have people think he's doing, but he did it in the power of Satan. And that's what they accused him of doing, in the power of Satan. And we know not, we know is in the power of God. In addition to that, when he was doing all of these, that still wasn't enough to validate that Jesus Christ was God, so all the signs and the wonders didn't always work. In fact, rarely work. In fact, mostly just work with one or two or the person upon whom that sign and wonder was done. 
even then it'd be interesting, do your own study, how many of those miracles of a sign and wonder he did that those people followed him all the way to the end? That's another sermon. It is coming. Go a little bit further. How many of the signs and wonders that even Satan can do, and they are recorded in Scripture, that they did not come from God? So now you have all this stuff going on with these signs and wonders, and yet Jesus Christ still says, one of the witnesses is that I did these because God's will was for me to do these things, and I did it in his power for his glory. So signs and wonders in scriptures did occur. But at the same time, the greatest strength that we have in our witness is the knowledge of his word and to communicate it. Here it is, to communicate it, obviously with our life, but also our lips, communicate it, first of all, correctly. That's why I urge you, to be a part of a good Bible teaching church, a good study class, and study the material on your own. Secondly, you need to know it clearly because you can give such great truth, but if you do not speak the intellectual language of the person to whom you're speaking, they're not going to get it. I did not say dummy down truth. I did say just make it clear. The third is that you would give it consistently so your truth isn't all over the map because all of a sudden they don't know where you're at. Next, that you're to give it courageously. And yes, the word of God, the purpose of the word of God is to unite people because truth doesn't change. It unites. But oddly, truth will divide people from error. So it also can divide people. So you have to be courageous and let God and the results be up to him. And then finally, to do it compassionately. See, that's the difference with, I hope, this new generation of Christians that we would not compromise courage on the altar of compassion. And at the same time, we wouldn't sacrifice compassion on the altar of courage either. Jesus said the law came by Moses, but grace and truth, notice grace first, then truth came by Jesus Christ. So he did these works and mighty works that he did, and you can read about them, and I can't wait. I'm, I'm already preparing messages for the future on the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, and all these things. Those are the works of Jesus Christ, again, pointing that he could not do these unless he was God. Now listen to this. Do you really think God would permit Jesus to do these things and announce who he was and be able to do those things if he was a charlatan? No, I think not. Well, let's go on to the third one here, if you don't mind. The third witness besides his work would be the witness of his father. The witness of his father. Now, this was an interesting study as I went through this because this is what I think is probably the, the challenge that you and I have as evangelicals when someone comes to the door that, does, that wants us to believe that Jesus Christ is not God. They love to hammer that you have God the Father and you have God the Son so that the Son is servant to the Father. And they interpret that whole paradigm with all these scriptures, I do what the Father tells me and all this kind of stuff, and I understand where they're coming from, and if I wanted to, I could just sit down and hear their logic and go through all of that stuff, and they pull this stuff out, and they try to use our Bible. They certainly want to put their Bible on top of our Bible. They'll either say our Bible is equal to their Bible, our Bible meaning the true Bible, and their Bible written by some man or group or however they got it. So they'll say our Bible is equal to theirs or their scripture is superior to ours. Here's the challenge, though. Yes, it's true. If I grab this verse or that phrase, and then I watch this, I take all of that and I run it through my grid of understanding of terms and concepts based on that little bit of stuff that they might throw at us, obviously we're going to come to that conclusion. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions throughout their course of that cult 
have believed that. The tragedy is, is they have not compared Scripture with Scripture. They haven't had good Bible teaching. And Satan is deceptive. We already know that. Our heart is deceitful. These people are already blind, trying to work with the blind. And you have all that going on. And that's where you get some of these challenges. So let me see if I can help you a little bit by taking you back to a Jewish mindset and the understanding of Scripture here. When you hear the word father and son in our culture, yes, we believe the son is going to be servant to the father. And in an earthly relationship, we are. My dad is uh, old school. We're only second generation here in the United States. And they came from a culture that, you know, dad spoke. You did what he told you to do. And, and you didn't ask him. He'd spank you and then later on tell you why you got spanked, that kind of thing. So I grew up with that. I'm not trying to denigrate that, but we learned to work under authority. We learned the hierarchy situation that was in our family. So that, that's how it is. In the Jewish culture, while you have that on an earthly plane, there's also something else that's going on in the background. When you talk about father and son, you're talking about family. You're talking about a unit. Maybe I'll put it back in earthly. I have, my dad's name is Rudolph, Rudolph Pons. And my name is Stanley Pond. So you can see we came from a Swiss-German background, Rudolph and Stanley. Now, while I have my dad and I have me, the father-son thing is not so much about dad's the boss and Stan follows along. It's a Pond's thing that's going on. It's showing a relationship, father-son, all in one family, a unit experience. So now when Jesus is talking about father-son, He's referring to that unit of being one. Now, yes, this is very important. Yes, Jesus did permit himself when he took upon man to also take upon him the form of a servant. So there is that bit of hierarchy. But it's after he left the glories of heaven and he took on the form of a human being and he came here to do all of that. But he did not give up his deity. That's the important thing. His humanity and deity were together. After he died and he rose again from the dead, he took upon himself or took back upon himself that full splendor of God as he moved away from his man or humanity at that time. So when you read Father, Son, you need to read unit there rather than father, old guy, son, young guy, father, boss, son, obedient. All right, you do you move away from that. Now, not so far because Jesus still did obey his father, God the Father, God the Son. I mentioned this a couple of uh, weeks ago, maybe yesterday or last week, I don't know, but you will find that Jesus will refer to God in heaven as the Father. He will refer to him as my Father. He only refers to him as our Father, which now really puts him down. But he does that in the believer's prayer because he's teaching them how to pray for you and me to say our Father, not that we're all with Christ. Let's get back to this. The only time he referred to God as not father is when he hung on the cross and he said, not my father, my father, why has you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, Jesus Christ took upon himself all the sin of you and me for all time of everyone at that moment. The whole concept of him referring to God as father is found 70 times in the Gospels alone. So let's go back to the passage. Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he 
has sent. Now, what does all that simply mean? Because some of you are saying, yeah, but didn't he speak here? Didn't he show up there? And the answer is yes. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to Jacob. He spoke to Manoah. He spoke to the children of Israel in the wilderness. So he spoke in the Old Testament. The Jews would recognize that. We know that God spoke when Jesus Christ was baptized because there was a voice out of heaven said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Later on at the Mount of Transfiguration, again, he said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. So God did speak. Did he also show up? I don't believe all God, all the full essence of God himself ever was visible. There was parts of him, how that all morphed itself out. I do not know, but I do know he showed up and what theologians call accurately Theophanies. A theophany is a visible showing of God. A Christophany is similar, same. Jesus and God is a showing up of Christ before he came to this earth in Bethlehem. And so he did do that. You'll remember there are times in Scripture when he showed up as well in the Old Testament. Why does this here say you, you've neither heard his voice or you've seen his form? Here's why. When he's speaking, they weren't recognizing his voice when God was speaking. When he was there, they did not see him because they did not recognize him. And the question now is, why didn't they when others did? It's in the verse. Here's where it says, you didn't do this for you do not believe him, which would mean me, whom God the Father has sent. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.